Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast, the Macro Matters edition. I'm Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Ira Jersey. We go to the other side of the research shop with Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist, Anna Wong. Anna, thanks for coming back on the FIC Focus podcast. Hi, Ira. I'm happy to be here. So yesterday was a pretty exciting day. Uh, We had the Federal Reserve meeting with the press conference from Chair Powell, who to, to my reading of uh, and and listening to his comments was a bit more like open and giving a lot more detail about the thinking of the Fed, at least in public, that we've heard before. Did did you have a similar feel for you know listening to the press conference that you know that 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 we kind of got a little bit of the inside baseball there from from uh, from Chair Powell? I think so, Ira. I, I think that. Um... He, so Powell has always been very uh, foxy like and like to be transparent. Um, and uh, he said yesterday what changed his thinking. Right. And he, he gave a list of like these indicators and said how each of those changes start to uh, inch the, the Fed forward to the current position today. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting to hear. So t- talk about what which of those you think might be the most important because they so you know obviously I'll I'll mention my thoughts first but um or or second after uh after you go but but which you know he mentioned like this timeline as to their thinking about um speeding up the taper which you know was widely anticipated you know by the time we got to the meeting yesterday but um, but, but talk talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that they got the employment cost index and then they got right after the meeting, they got CP, the November meeting, they got CPI and that that kind of solidified their um, their their thinking or at least his view of uh, of needing a faster taper just to give themselves some um, some leeway as to when they might actually start to increase interest rates. So, you know, t- talk a little bit about, you know, your your thinking about the transparency and how that may have you know, either confirmed your view or maybe um, maybe changed your view a little bit about the way that the Fed's thinking about uh, their first hikes. Yeah, so nothing in yesterday's meeting surprised us because um, it's uh, we we were almost like right on on everything. I'm sorry, but yes, let, let me just brag a little bit about that. Um, But um, he mentioned ECI and we paid a lot of attention to ECI too when it came out because what uh, we we always knew the Fed um, uh, 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 valued the ECI as a wage gauge more so than any other wage measures such as the average hourly earnings and the payroll report. No, it's always the ECI. And what it said back then is that the wage and salary component has risen to like an early 1980s high. And that was even before that shock CPI in October. And then when, um, so, but however, I, I think what um, the, the yes, yesterday's meeting did confirm for us is that 
um, the Fed is serious about hiking it faster and higher, even though the market is wide and traders and this traders are, you know, so far uh, doing better than sell side economists in terms of predicting the short term rate hikes. The traders expected it would be three next next year. Yesterday's SCP indeed confirmed that. But I think uh, what what is different uh, from the SCP is that the, the Fed expects that the terminal rate would be higher. Yesterday, it said 2.1% in 2024, whereas the market still expect a pretty, um, you know, 1.6, uh, 1.5 terminal rates. So in that sense, we are different from the market. Our read is that, uh, you know, before even before yesterday's meeting, our read is that it will be three hikes next year four in 2023 and um, uh, two in 2024. So we were we were very close. And if you look at the dot plot yesterday, eight out of the 18 uh, FOMC participants wanted four hikes in 2023. So it's very close call for 2023, whether you see three or four. Um, in, in any case, the terminal rate should be above 2% and higher than, than the market. What surprised me yesterday, though, is not what the Fed said, but how the market reacted to it. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether the market is not really hearing what Chair Powell is saying, because I think what Powell is saying is that I think they are kind of he's hinting that they will lift off in March. Um, and he he's serious about hiking rates above two percent. I I don't I, I'm not sure whether the market heard that. So well well the, no the market the I think Anna the market heard it and and my read of this is that the the market may have heard it the market just doesn't believe it right so the the, the market is very skeptical that if the Fed does hike say six or seven times by the end of 2023 they think that the Fed's going to have to stop early because they're hiking too fast so basically that the Fed's going to make a policy mistake the you know the market is thinking we're going to have 1.3 to 1.5 um, percent terminal rate and um, and and that's one of the reasons you see you know today for example the belly of the yield curve outperforming so much because that's kind of the part of the curve um, that you'd you'd end up uh, seeing pricing in for a higher terminal rate now I, I personally agree with you and and maybe that's optimistic of us right like I think that the risk here um, for those of us who you know want the economy to do well, they we want um, you know maybe inflation to slow but remain you know if it remains three three and a half percent, we think that the the Fed probably will hike. I mean we we've noted before, Angela and I noted in a piece just a couple of weeks ago that the Fed has never stopped hiking when real rates were um, were lower than than zero, right? So so until we get real funds you know basically to zero, then it, it's going to be hard to see how the um, uh, why the Fed would stop. So so even if even if inflation does slow to 2%, I agree with you, like the Fed's probably going to hike to 2%, right? And the market is not thinking that right now. So so I think what's likely to happen, and, and our view is remains unchanged on this, is that regardless of when the Fed starts hiking, whether it's March or May or June, I, I personally think March might be a little bit early, but but May certainly is, is you know, in the cards. But regardless, so first half hike, right? So third kind of kind of a second quarter hike uh, in, in next year. Once that starts to happen, I think that's when you start to see a pretty significant repricing of, of the curve. You see the five year, the three year, the five year underperform uh, along the curve. You see terminal rate, rate uh, expectations jump up from where they are now, maybe 50 basis points to like 1.8, 1.9%. Um, and, and you can have a pretty, that's when you get massive, pretty massive bear 
uh, steepening, uh, excuse me, bare flattening of most curves, um, just with the front end, um, you know, jumping up because people will finally, you know, say that maybe the risks aren't as high much as we we, we are. So, so, so I, I believe you. I think that the market is just more skeptical now, and and market might stay skeptical until the Fed actually does hike. Uh, at least that's that's our expectation. And it it seems like that uh, there's an irony to this because the the more uh, you know the more easy the Fed it, I mean the the more easy the market is um, and looser financial conditions then the Fed would want to hike more um, and and I, I think that um, the market reaction so far justified and emboldened the Fed to hike even steeper because from their perspective they're looking at the market and they said oh our greatest fear has been taper tantrum it didn't happen that solidified that uh, the market actually can withstand tighter faster pace <laughs> well you know it's so funny that we talk about the taper tantrum we had the taper tantrum it was just in january and february when the worst of the covid crisis was over i mean we we did see interest rates move up 120 basis points in the 10-year um, and, you know, we remember during the taper tantrum in 2013, we were almost at the yield lows of that cycle when yeah. when we got the taper tantrum. So it's a timing issue. It's not, you know, we we so so I think a lot of market participants who were outside of the rates market seem to think that when you, you get these announcement effects, but the market knew that at some point the Fed was going to taper. Right. So we, we repriced that already in February and March. And then we were trying to figure out, OK, now what's the timing? And then there's been these little tweaks. And that's why. You know, when we think about the range in the 10-year yield, yeah, we had a little dip down to about 1.1% in the 10-year. But broadly speaking, we've been between 1.3 and 1.6% basically for nine months. So, so it's it's and and it's that the market has kind of found its equilibrium, and it probably won't move very much more until we get some significant news. Um, and when I when I say this, I mean more the 10-year. I think that the two-year can you know move up very significantly. In fact, we still have. Um, our, our expectation is for the two-year to uh, yields to double, um, based on what you've mentioned, Anna. Is that if the Fed does hike three times next year, and even if it it doesn't hike four, as the as some members of the Fed think, but they hike two or three in 2024, uh, 2023 rather, um, then the two-year yield will will have to be a, a year forward will have to be um, at least 50 or 60 basis points higher than what it is today. But but let's pivot a little bit to like the the the. Um, you know some of the other aspects of the meeting, and and obviously we we haven't mentioned the statement once. Everything that we've been talking about it comes from the press conference because of the, I guess the the extra detail. But but was there any of the the tweaks to the statement that um, uh, it didn't surprise you? But but is there any particular language change that you think is is most significant and something we should look out for uh, when we get the next uh, statement in uh, at the end of January? Yeah, the the statement is a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it, Ira? The um, on the on the um, description about inflation, there it it, it was uh, interesting. So we had expected, and and also David Wilcox, who's our, our was a member of the U.S. team, also expected that the uh, replacement for the transitory inflation would be something like we still expect inflation to recede. Um, David was expecting like um, a, an an actual an actual inclusion of a calendar based guidance like will recede in two or three years, but I was thinking more of that they would say inflation will recede over time, but that did not that was not even in there. They just said that inflation um, 
the supply and demand and reopening factors contribute to continued elevated inflation. You know, nothing that says inflation will come down. Although in the SEP, uh, they did have inflation coming down in 2022. Um, that's why the SEP is way more interesting than um, the statement in terms of looking for how they think about inflation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, going forward, so, so you're, so what, if you had to put a probability distribution, so I think that the market, you know, certainly is, you know, play, toying with the idea of either a March or a May uh, or June, uh, June initial hike. Um, you know, if you had to put a probability distribution on that first hike, um, you know, when, you know, what, what probabilities would you put on those three different potential dates? Uh, so the choices is March, May, and July. Is that is that right? Uh, Mar March, May, and June. Yeah. Ma March, May, and June. Um, I think the probability I would put the most probability I would put forty percent on uh, March, and uh, thirty thirty in the last uh, in May. Right. Yeah, and then I and then I guess what what I guess what could derail you know what would what would shift those probabilities like would it be you know primary obviously it would be more than likely economic data or some kind of you know additional shock right like it would have to be some exogenous event you know trade war with China heats up again or something <laughs> um, but what um you know what what do you think what what would you be looking for to shift those probabilities one way or the other to say yeah you know as we get data. Uh, for December and January, you know, what 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 moves March to toward 100 percent or what moves, say, June to 100 percent and, and away from March? Yeah. So. Um, so first of all, um, I just want to say that our, our expectations of three rate hikes next year and four in 2023 and two in 24, uh, which is very close to the, the dot plot yesterday, is based on the assumption of uh, that consensus market forecast for inflation and unemployment rate comes to pass. But uh, the consensus forecast right now is lagging. If you go on the Bloomberg terminal, the consensus forecast, most of it is reported as of uh, mid-November. So if you use the most up-to-date inflation uh, and un unemployment rate forecasts, you know, uh, which we have in-house, then it would actually suggest more than three rate hikes next year. Four, more like four. So even given the data development that we already have, and if you um, update the forecast um, you know, in real time, it would already be saying four for next year. So, so that's why I put the probability of a hike in March uh, at 40%. So what will, will push it to, let's say, 60%? I would think that if um, I start seeing evidence of um, a re-intensification of supply chain bottlenecks, um, right now... So, so, I, so I have a question about that. Everyone's making a big deal about these supply chain bottlenecks. So, so you're thinking, and, and you're not alone in this for, for sure, is that the you think that the, the Federal Reserve will try to crimp demand to to in an attempt to relieve supply chain bottlenecks is that the, the, the that's the thinking i mean it's and, and i only say this because i'm 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 of of the ilk that okay we we know that goods you know goods prices have been have been shooting upward and obviously that has an effect on inflation expectations and those are more observable prices than a lot of the services that we consume on a on a day to day basis so 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 my thing is is that you're is if the Fed 
job and or they, they think that their perceived job is to slow the economy in order to relieve supply chains, then then they almost have to hike faster, don't they? Because it, it, they have to hike fast enough to, to crimp demand early, which means that maybe the market's right that they're not going to be able to hike because they might hike six times in a year. Right. And then and, and you know, that might have a detrimental effect to, you know, certainly real growth and, and maybe nominal growth as well. And, and so so a terminal rate of one and a half percent would be completely possible in that scenario. Well, I, I, I think that the, the connection between supply chain and uh, why they would want to hike is because they are very worried about inflation expectations and even in the expectation is kind of like showing showing some signs of moving up now and and normally they would not you know they would just say say that supply chain bottlenecks is transitory therefore they would look through it but when something happens um recurrently like uh, and kept the prices high that's how it affects expectations. That's how it moves up expectations. If you think about the 1970s, also the oil shock, right? Oil oil shocks are supposed to be transitory, but when it uh, when 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 there were two oil shocks in, within a short time frame, and the uh, and people's psychology sh- sh- sort of um, shifted. Then that's where the expectations are an anchoring, and and within the so, Fed, but 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 it, but back in the seventies, you had significant structural differences. Like thirty percent of uh, people's wages were tied to to inflation, to CPI back then, because you had significant wages, yeah, you had significant union presences and things like that. And over the last forty years, that that structural changes has shifted significantly. Now, granted, the the inflation expectations, I agree, you know, those can go up. But so so those structural differences, I think, can't be ignored. Um, And it it sounds like a lot of people are ignoring, um, you know, those structural differences, especially when they're trying to make a correlation to the 70s and and today, right? The 1970s, we know, were an an exceptionally unusual period for inflation, right? If you just for the forever history, going back to 1650, you look at inflation and interest rates, and and that was completely unprecedented. And um, even during wartime, you never had inflation or interest rates, you know, shoot up to to those kind of levels. So um, so is that an exemplar that we can really use? I, I I totally agree with you about those structural differences, but I think that there are other parallels to the 1970s that may, you know, that that are very, um, I mean, um, legitimate to make. For example, um, back then uh, the economy does not care about semiconductor chips. Today, the supply chain uh, bottlenecks is highly related to uh, chips, which is like oil to the economy. And second of all, on the on the unionization of the of the you know labor market today, we have uh, the pandemic of the century, and our labor market force is significantly lower than pre-pandemic. But that also means that there's this big chunk of people who are about to get back in the economy, and they have the power to negotiate their wage. The quits rates are also at um, it's super high, and and the the place where people can negotiate higher wages is when they quit and start a new job, or when they just start a new job, right? So if you think about that that very we, that that very special circumstance that we are in, the labor force also has this now has this bargaining power 
that you don't need to be in a union to have. You just need to be in a super tight uh, uh, labor market where people cannot find workers. Then you have almost as much bargaining power as, you know, uh, being in a union. And not to mention that uh, increasingly you do read news about people, workers going on strike and trying to negotiate um, um, the wages being tied to a higher cost of living and you know, the, the longer these uh, um, prolonged period of high inflation last, the more uh, bargaining power does the workers have. So you don't need a unionization, a union to be in a union to bargain for higher wage. You just quit, you know? Um, right. Sure. But uh, yeah, but but it, it, my point is, is that the, the wage pressures wouldn't be passed along as quickly, right? So it's much different when you have you know, 20,000 people working at a factory who all get a raise at the same time versus, you know, 2.5% of them quitting, um, which is what like the quit rate basically is is close to now, right? 2.8% the last reading. Um, great. So, so you know, talk just a little bit. We only have a minute or two left here. Um, just a little bit about the, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, what, what might unravel some of your thinking for um, for, for the, those higher rates. So if we do get, you know, th three three hikes next year, four hikes in, in, in 2023, what could go the other way, right? What 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 are the risk factors that that might crop up over the next three or four months that might change your opinion a little bit about that pace of hikes? Yeah, I, I think that there are two risks on the horizon. One is Omicron and how it will affect growth. And second, China. I am less worried about the Omicron risk on growth than on China. Uh, so Omicron right now is just a risk, right? It's a, it's a risk on growth, but China is actually admitted that that is materializing. Um, and in 2015, China was the reason why the Fed had to postpone liftoff and significantly slow the pace of the rate hikes in 2016. Originally, everybody was expecting four, and then because China, um, then there was only one. And then in 2017 and 2018, you know, um, Powell also did a pivot in 2018 where he abruptly stopped the hiking cycle because of global growth weakness. And that is an interesting period because um, I don't think people ever put the finger on that. Oh, China is the reason for why the Fed stopped in 2018. But in fact, China was doing a major deleveraging campaign to slow the credit growth in 2017, and their economy was definitely slowing. Whenever China slows, the whole manufacturing, like uh, you know, uh, supply chain, all the economies along the supply chain also slows. Like Germany, it will slow. And I think my interpretation of the 2018 global weakness is that it's it, it has its roots in China as well. So you can tell already in the last six years, the two cycles, the two times when the Fed wants to hike, it's China that stopped it. And right now, China's property market slump uh, seems to be pretty serious. And but recently, the Chinese government announced some um, <clears throat> Of uh, stimulus measures, and they reduce our uh, reserve currency uh, ratio to try to stimulate uh, growth. But I have to wonder whether it's too late, and whether the 
um, property slump is steeper than what the data is showing. Whenever China slows, people know it with a lag because suddenly all these indicators disappear. <laughs> they stop to publishing indicators showing how bad things are. So it always catches people by surprise. So I, I think China would be a major disinflationary force next year if they do slow significantly. Great. Well, that's Anna Wong, the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, thanks, Anna, for coming back on the Fig Focus podcast. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks. And now we're going to pivot to our fun fed fact segment with Angelo Monolatos. Angelo, we have going to have faster taper come January. Talk to us a little bit about how the reverse repo facility might act and uh, how taper might uh, um yeah, you know how, how taper is going to change a little bit as we uh, double the pace of uh, of uh, uh, of the reduction of asset purchases. Hey, Ira, thanks for having me on. So, yeah, um, earlier this week, the New York Fed announced uh, a new schedule, sixty and thirty, and the Fed, uh, although they doubled their pace of asset uh, purchase reduction, they left that they left that schedule unchanged. So we're going to see um, twenty and ten billion dollar reductions in February. And then in January and then in February, and by the ninth business day of March, we're going to be um, we're going to be done with purchases. So uh, that does mean more more asset purchases uh, means the liability side as well will need to rise, which is the Fed pays for those asset purchases with reserves. However, uh, when you look at that that whole landscape of the Federal Reserve's liabilities, you have um, you have the Reverse repo facility, which is at 1.6 trillion, you have um, the federal uh, the bank reserves, um, and you also now have this slowing growth in asset purchases and eventually no growth in asset purchases. So um, we will likely see a deceleration in the growth, or pro- even a dip, or probably yeah a dip in the reverse repo facility, and this is because. The federal, uh, the Treasury's cash balance, which currently sits at around 135 billion, is going to be poised to increase quite significantly, probably around to around five to six hundred billion uh, over the coming months as the debt ceiling resolution uh, is reached, uh, which will put downward pressure on um, on those on those uh, on those balances uh, in the reverse repo facility more so than more so uh, maybe than the taper will. Yeah, and in particular because the um, basically the Treasury Department will be able to issue a whole lot of uh, of T bills. There's a little bit of a question about what the what the pace of that will be, especially since we have uh, we we have the holiday period coming up. But uh, it will be you know like you said between four and five hundred billion dollars probably of increased uh, T bill issuance, and that will likely reduce the reverse repo facility almost one for one, or or you know probably with a a pretty high beta, you know maybe 0.9 beta or something like that to um, uh, to the the T bill issuance as the Treasury general account increases, you, you'll have a reduction in bank reserves, and 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 that will, will reduce the need for use in the uh, the RRP facility. Um, Angelo, anything else on uh, the Fed's balance sheet? Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit more in the new year about the Bank of Canada and some of its uh, what it's going on. We'll have Anna's uh, Anna's colleague Andrew Husby come back on the show and, and talk about that. But anything else on on the Fed today? Yeah, so yesterday in the press conference, actually very close to the end, um, someone asked Chairman Jerome Powell the question about balance sheet unwind. 
So the three stages of balance sheet are quantitative easing, which you grow the asset side, um, this uh, taper, which you slow quantitative easing, kind of the reinvestment phase where you just reinvest uh, maturing uh, assets, and then runoff where you let the, the proceeds actually run off the balance sheet. So they asked a question directly about runoff, and uh, Jerome Powell could have uh, punted that question, but in fact, the the Federal Reserve has begun discussions about their balance sheet, and that's that's what he said, and they're going to continue to have these discussions. And if you go backwards to the previous crisis, the Federal Reserve didn't unwind their balance sheet for uh, almost two years after the first interest rate hike. So we came out earlier this week or last week saying that you know you could have runoff occur much sooner, maybe even in 2022, or even concurrent with the first interest rate hike. And now we're already seeing the Federal Reserve having those discussions about runoff. Yeah, and the, the, I think that maybe if they started, um, if they did hike in March, as as Anna suspects that they might, then I do think that they would probably wait at least a meeting or two before they started runoff. But if they started in, say, the first hike was June, I could that's when I could see the runoff starting concurrently. And, and one of the reasons I think it's going to be important for the Federal Reserve to start this runoff early, and I think this is this is a key factor in this, and, and we mentioned this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, is that the there is so much excess liquidity in the market right now that that basically runoff will not be hiking right so so when when you reduce the balance sheet and and reserve balances are going down significantly that it should theoretically be um be, be the opposite of quantitative easing right that should be a, a reduction in monetary policy but with uh, over a trillion dollars even after we wind up getting all of the the nuances and and the increase in the treasury general account from from the debt ceiling uh, T-bill increases, um, you still have to run off that that trillion dollars first before you get to a point where quantitative tightening is actually tightening, right? So runoff won't be tightening, in my view, until probably sometime in 2023, even if they start in uh, in mid-2022. Um, so, so you're still talking about a year before that kind of kicks in, which which goes along to what Anna's say, talking about with a higher terminal rate. And, and that's one of the reasons that, that we certainly agree with that, that you can get a terminal rate closer to 2% because you're not still not running off your um, the Fed's balance sheet and tightening monetary policy for quite a long time. It, it is, in, in my view, too, one of the reasons why maybe they'll they'll actually go um, a little bit slower after uh, you, you get to that point where the, the RP balance is near zero. But, um, you know, but again, that's 2023. It's it's so far in the future that it's that's more guesswork than uh, any kind of forecasting. With that, we're going to close our show there that on behalf of Angelo Monolatos from Bloomberg Intelligence Interest Rate Strategy and Anna Wong, our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. I'm Ira Jersey. And we appreciate you listening. And if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to hit, hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Just hit that IB button and you can find our research uh, on the terminal as well. Uh, With that, be well.